Lord God, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's been a crazy, hectic week, and but you've been faithful even during those times we've, we've been faithless. And, and right now, as we prepare our hearts and minds to get into your word, to get into this study, I pray that everything that's said, everything that's heard, may be retained in the deepest parts of our hearts. Lord, in this hectic world that we live in, with all the stuff that's just been going on, we need that peace that can only come from you. It's only through that peace that we're able to find that reconciliation with you and with others. And we so desperately need it for ourselves, for our community, for our nation. That's just so divided right now, Lord. I ask that you move mightily in this, in this nation and, and within the hearts of people, that you bring revival, Lord. We need you, Lord, desperately. as we get in again into your word right now, Lord, teach us. May the, every veil that's blinding us right now may it be removed so that we can see you for who you are, the wonderful Heavenly Father that you are. Lord, use me to speak your truth. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure many of you guys already know this, but my family and I aren't from El Paso. We, we grew up, we pretty much, all, everybody, but everybody but one of us was born in San Diego. Was born somewhere in San Diego. We, everyone but one, yeah, everyone but one was born in San Diego. Um, me and Robin were raised there. We had a great time growing up there. And, and every time we go home, it feels good. You know, it, for the most part, it feels good. Depends. Um, and when we go, we always make plans to do this and to do that, to go see this person, to go see that person. And we're always, again, just pretty excited about going. But the one thing we don't expect when we go is to be rejected by all our friends, all our family. That hasn't happened yet, and I hope it never does. My prayers are always, even, even when we go, before we go, that we'll make some kind of an impact, a positive impact. And although there are times that uh, some friends may not have time to see us, or we don't, the plans don't necessarily go through, and um, we still, we, we come back for the most part again, feeling pretty good about, this, about our trips going out there. This morning, we're gonna be reading about another homecoming, a homecoming for Jesus 
that didn't go so well. At this homecoming, we'll see how Jesus is dealt with the rejection from, his, from the town he grew up in, and how ultimately this resulted in a whole town being deprived of the blessings that Jesus intended to bestow upon them. We'll also be reading about how that rejection, how that rejection became a practical lesson to the disciples for a task that he believed they were ready for. I hope to show you this morning some of the valuable lessons you can also learn from rejection, from the rejection Jesus endured in his hometown. So turn to your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible there in front of you, it's either 554 or 555, I believe. That's where we'll be at. Mark chapter 6. And we're going to be starting this new chapter. We're going to be in verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom, wisdom given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. So after having ministered to Jairus and his family, Jesus decides to go back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now it's important to keep in mind the tension that already existed in his hometown prior to his arrival. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, his friends and relatives tried to restrain him. They tried to grab a hold of him, to lock him up, because they had come to the conclusion that Jesus was completely nuts, that he had gone out of his mind, that he was going from town to town with people following him, doing all kinds of, you know, teaching, you know, things contrary to what they had grown up learning, what they had grown up knowing. And so they wanted to get a hold of him, lock him up, and just put him away. They thought he was completely, he had gone completely nuts. So going back to Nazareth would have been a very bold and gutsy move. But aside from Jerusalem, if there was anywhere he wanted to minister the most, it would have been in the place where he grew up. All of us have this fondness of the places we grew, we grew up in, well, for the most part. You know, I, you know again, I, I have, you know, these thoughts of going back home and, and being able just to you know, be in this ministry and that ministry and, and, and doing all kinds of stuff for the Lord. But that's not where the Lord has me. He has me here, and I'm just as happy being here. I've, uh, this place has become my, the El Paso has become my adoptive home. And, you know, it, it would be very, very difficult to leave here. But again, if there was one place he wanted to minister, it, it would have been in the place where he grew up in. You see, Jesus had spent close to 30 years living there and seeing firsthand the suffering of his friends, relatives, neighbor, and the suffering his neighbors 
would have endured. He wanted to help them, while at the same time making a difference by transforming lives, by transforming lives. So in verse 2, when the first Sabbath arrived, when he's there and the first Sabbath finally arrives, as was customary for him to do in every town he visited, he begins to teach in the local synagogue. Now, I imagine the synagogue in Nazareth being completely packed with the people Jesus had grown up seeing, had grown up knowing, and had grown up interacting with. Watching and listening to this person they had known as a boy, telling them the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And not just listening to an expanded version of that message, but also hearing about the miracles that had been done through him. It's no wonder that by the time he was done, we read, many who heard him were astonished. But see, this is the amazing thing. Rather than glorifying God, they turn into captious critics who begin to question the source of Jesus' authority. They said, and you can see it there, they said in verse... um, In verse 2, where did this man get these things? What they were essentially doing was questioning where he had attained his knowledge. Then they said, what is this wisdom given to him? And there they were questioning the type of training he had received. And then they said, how are these miracles performed by his hands? And what they were, again, essentially doing was questioning the source of Jesus' power. Then in verse 3, their criticism about Jesus' wisdom and power shifts into a more personal attack regarding his trade as a carpenter and the nature of his familial legitimacy. In the Jewish culture during that time, when speaking about another male, it was customary to be, and customary and respectful to refer to to that person as the son of his father. So for instance, if you guys were having a conversation about Jacob, you would say, that's Jacob, the son of angel. And that's, that was the custom, that was the respectful thing to do, regardless if that father was dead or alive. So by referring to Jesus as a son of Mary, they were essentially questioning, questioning his legitimacy of being the son of Joseph. The fact that Mary was pregnant prior to her marriage to Joseph would have been scandalous and would have also changed the dynamics between Joseph's family and the rest of the town. Those doubts about Jesus was something that he also probably grew up with his entire life. And it would have been exacerbated after the death of Joseph, after the death of his earthly father, Joseph. Then, they continued, in, they continued to make Jesus out to be anything but special. They mentioned the fact that his biological brothers and sisters were no more than regular villagers there as well. At the end of verse 3, read, we read about the, how those, that those critics felt offended by him. They were offended because they refused to accept the notion that there was indeed something unique and something special about Jesus from the moment he was conceived. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to. All they saw was just a a, a pregnant, a woman that was pregnant 
that you know wasn't even married to the guy she was supposed to be married to I'm sure they heard the stories I'm heard there were whispers there and and maybe they thought she was crazy but it, again it would have been scandalous and and but they just refused to see it even as Jesus is growing up again we don't have an, a full account of how Jesus you know what Jesus was as a child but I'm sure there was something unique and something special about him but again they refused to see it they refused to accept any notion there was anything special you see, fam the familiarity of Jesus made his belie believability much more difficult for them. And as a result, they couldn't see beyond the, the veil of Jesus' ordinariness. So this is why they took offense to him. They were essentially saying, who does he think he is? This is Jesus, the son of... We don't even know if that's his father. We don't even know where he came from. I mean, he's just... Like, he's a carpenter, and his sisters and his brothers are here with us, and they don't even believe in him. We know about one brother, James, who eventually does believe in him. And he becomes... You know, he ends up being one of the martyrs, too, for Jesus. But, you know, there was just... There was, no one took him seriously. Again, it was that veil of ordinariness that was, that was blinding them. For many Christians, excuse me, there's nothing more difficult than being treated with contempt by the people they had been, they had been close to growing up. I personally believe that if I wasn't a Christian today, and had adopted the, the philosophy of man and allowed the views of this world to determine, to define and shape my perspectives, I have no doubt, I absolutely have no doubt at all that my relationship between my brother and my sisters would be drastically different, different and possibly much more deeper than they are now. Don't get me wrong. I know they love me and God knows I love them too. But the wedge that exists between us is due in large part to my unmitigated belief that Jesus Christ is the only way a person can be reconciled to God. And also, as far as I know, and this is also the, the, the interesting thing about my background, a bit about my family, is that I'm the only one on both my father's side and my mother's side that has adopted a Protestant evangelical theological belief. They're all, and they're all Catholics, and that's, again, I, I'm not bashing that at all. I don't want to. But do you see where I'm coming from, too? You see that it's, I'm swimming against the grain or against the, against the tide. It's something that has always been difficult to deal with during family reunions, but one that I gladly accept. The moment a person chooses to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's only a matter of time before they'll begin to see and feel some sort of rejection or pushback from some of the people closest to them. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Now, if you've never experienced that rejection or that pushback, then maybe 
just maybe you ought to be you ought to begin questioning what you believe in and how strong your faith is in Christ what are you hiding from what are you afraid of now though he wasn't a Christian I remember reading a quote from Malcolm X that has stuck with me to this day he said if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything and it's 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 stuck it's stuck with me because I want to stand with Jesus I don't want to just be that closeted Christian I don't want to be that Christian that just hey yeah, yeah I, I think I do or you know I, I just sit there quietly while everyone's you know just bashing my Lord and Savior no I want to stand for him it's the same way he stood for me on that cross I don't want to be afraid of rejection I don't want to hide who I am I want to stand for Jesus Christians should not fear or run away from rejection. In fact, Jesus tells us to expect it and to rejoice when it does happen. Jesus said in Luke 6, and 23, you are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because, the son of, because of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. Rejection from strangers is one thing, but rejection from family and old friends can be cruel. Cruel because it's heartbreaking to feel that way, to be treated that way. And cruel because People can be just so mean. People can just absolutely be mean, mean. Now, in addition to being re to to expecting rejection, another tremendous obstacle Christians may have to endure, especially at home and among old friends, is the indifference and skepticism that comes from them. As we see in these first three verses, there may be some who just can't see past the person you once were. Regardless of the type of character that you had, even if you were a nicest, the nicest person in the world, or the meanest, ugliest person that just was always doing horrible things, if they know you stand for Jesus, if they know that you're a Christian now and you have this view that there's only one way to get to, 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 get to God, there's going to be some pushback and there's going to be some rejection. I've heard of instances where new Christians had gone back home and have been personally attacked. They've been shunned and ostracized by the people that were the closest to growing up. And we see a lot of that, especially in these Middle Eastern countries where former Muslims have come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They go back home, and a lot of them, they risk, they're, they're risking their lives. The, there's a possibility there that the family might kill them. There's, that, there's a term they use called honor killings, and, and, 
there's that possibility. But they're willing to, to they, they know the cost, they understand that cost. It shouldn't, so it shouldn't surprise you if the people you grew up with, the people you grew up knowing, are offended by you for just sharing your faith, for just sharing the faith and hope that is in you. And if you didn't have the right, and, and the thing is, a lot of times they're offended because they, they have the attitude as, as if you didn't have the right to say anything to them. As if you didn't have the ex- life experience to say anything to them. Maybe treat it like just you're nothing. Because, it, again, because of their pride. In those moments, in those moments when you are being rejected and you are being vilified and you are being attacked, it's best not to ruin the seed that you planted in them by pushing back by arguing back, by fighting back. The best thing to do is just pray and let God do the rest. Friends, the truth of the matter is family rejection may be one of the costs that comes with being a true follower of Christ. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let me ask you, is following Christ, is following Jesus Christ worth losing everything you once held dear? And not just losing those things, but bearing with the weight that comes with that loss like being rejected and being personally attacked. Believe me, I know that sometimes that cross may be unbearable and it may be so heavy and hard to carry and I know. But during those moments, you can take out verses like Romans 8:18, where it says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You can take verses like that out of your back pocket and just wipe yourself, wipe that sweat, wipe those tears that are running down your eyes because of the pain, because of the weight of that cross. The price Jesus had to pay to forgive you for all your sins is worth it, my friend. It's worth it. Let's read on. Let's go to verse 4. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. So he was not able to do any miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. (laughs) If you ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, verse 4 was Jesus' way of saying that. And in addition, his response to the indifference of those captious critics is also indicative of a couple of Jesus' characteristics. Firstly, 
He knew his Bible and saw how time after time every prophet had been treated in the same manner by, by their own people. And secondly, by making that comment, he was identifying himself with those prophets. But still, even though he understood these things, even though he made that comment, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and his household. I mean, what an amazing response. But, but still, in a, more personal in a more personal sense, it still must have been hurtful to have been rejected and vilified by the people he knew and grew up with. As a result, verse 5 tells us that he wasn't able to do any miracles there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So again, let me ask you, why do you think he wasn't able to? Why do you think he wasn't able to, do, to, to heal or to do what he wanted to do there? Was it because he physically couldn't do any of the miracles there? He couldn't do it. Was it because, I'm sorry, was it because he couldn't do any miracles there? Or was it because he just didn't want to? Well, I don't believe, I don't believe it, was, it was because he physically couldn't. Jesus' power wasn't limited by the location he was in. It, it, it didn't matter if he was in Nazareth or whether he was in one of the towns or whether he was in the Gerasenes region that we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus' power wasn't limited to, by, to where he was, to, to his location. You see, as the second person of the triune nature of God, Jesus could have done whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, had he just asked for it from his Father. And I certainly don't believe that it wasn't because he didn't want to. This would have made Jesus into a cold-hearted, mean, and vindictive person. And I'm positive, just by what we know about him already in these first six verses, know about, and what we know about his compassionate heart, that he wanted to. He wanted to bless people. He wanted to bless as many people as he possibly could, especially, again, in his hometown. The fact of the matter is, Jesus wasn't able to accomplish much in his hometown because of the unbelief and hard-heartedness of the people there. Their unbelief was what deprived them of the full blessings Jesus desired to shower upon them. Now let me give you an illustration to just to, to show you what I mean. Imagine if I came to your house with a million dollars and my intent was to give you that million dollars. But while I was there, you treated me with disrespect by criticizing me and vilifying me. Do you think I would still be willing and inclined to give you my gift? No, I don't, I don't think so. You see, Jesus will not force himself on a hostile and skeptical audience. What's important to understand in this verse is that the reason Jesus couldn't perform miracles was not because he was physically, not because it was physically impossible for him to do so. Rather, he couldn't because he, it would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent of Jesus to bless people who reject him. Now, in regards to the kingdom of God, 
it would have been inappropriate, it would be inappropriate for a king to bestow on the unwilling subjects all the benefits and blessings of his kingly rule. So you see why he was amazed at the end of verse 6? Do you see why he was just amazed at their unbelief? It says there, and he was amazed at their unbelief. That amazement we see Jesus expressing was due to their unbelief and hard-heartedness. Because even after having heard and even seen some of the, the few miracles he did perform there and the few miracles that were done through him, his friends and his relatives still refused to accept the truth about him. Christian, Jesus, more than anyone, understood the cost of doing the will of his Father. And although it may have hurt to feel the pain of rejection, he exemplifies for, for us the best way to handle it. Now, one of those ways is by showing us the importance of knowing your word, to know the word of God. In this book, in this book, you're giving centuries, centuries of real people's experiences on how they dealt with it, on how they dealt with, with every situation that you, you may be going through. The more you understand this Bible, the more you understand the Word of God, the more wisdom you'll gain in dealing with, again, every situation even if it is rejection. Also, in verses 5 through 7, it, it reveals to us the importance faith has in receiving God's blessings. God has a storeroom. He has a huge, the biggest storeroom you, storeroom you can imagine, full of blessings that He wants to bestow on every single person. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. And in 2 Corinthians 9.8, we're told, And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything that you need, you may excel in every good work. However, this is important to understand those blessings are reserved and given to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ the unbelief hard hardness and rejection of a person make it impossible for them for it makes it impossible to that for them to be thankful and also to give supreme glory to the source of those blessings Yet, yet are you aware that in God's goodness, He still blesses those that reject Him? Did you know that all, every single day that you rejected Jesus Christ, He still blessed you? Every new day, every heartbeat, and every breath that God gives is a blessing in and of itself. 
And it also is another opportunity to accept the free gift of forgiveness that he offers everyone. I believe this is one of the reasons we see Jesus performing just, just a few miracles in verse, in verse 6. He did it out of the abundant mercy and compassion that flows out of him. And that flows, actually that flows within him and out of him. So, if he was only able to do, to perform or only do a few miracles among them, among these unbelieving people, and if he's able to bless all these people that are around us, that are shaking their fists at God every single day, how much more so do you think he's willing to bless those who believe in him? He, is, he, he wants to bless you. I absolutely believe that. Verses 1 and 6, verses 1 through 6, was also a learning lesson to the disciples for the work that Jesus is about to send them, send them out to do. Let's read about it, starting in verse 7. Actually, we'll be going back to 6. It says at the end of verse 6, Now he was going around the villages in a circuit, teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing on the road except a walking stick. No bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, They were to wear sandals and not to put on an extra shirt. Then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people people refuse to listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that the people should repent. And they were driving out many demons anointing many sick people with olive oil and healing them. At the end of verse 6, we then see Jesus going around with his disciples, going from village to village. When it talks about a circuit here, he's just going around the region to the different villages, to the different towns, teaching the message he's been teaching this entire time. As he's traveling with his disciples, as he's going, awa- going around walking with them, the bond between them is growing stronger and stronger by the day. And then Jesus decides that it's time to give them some practical application on everything they've been learning so far. And in verse 7, he convenes a meeting with his 12 disciples. And in, that many, and in that meeting, his plan is to begin sending them out in pairs in order to expand the message he's already been sharing. Now, he's, as he sends them out, he also gives them authority over these demonic spirits, over these evil spirits. Their purpose, the disciples' purpose was to allow them to, be, to begin applying, no, I'm sorry, Jesus' purpose in sending these, his disciples out was to allow them to begin applying what they've been seeing Jesus do 
And what has Jesus been doing this entire time? He's been preaching. He's been healing the sick. And he's been freeing people from demonic spirits. And now he's sending his disciples out and saying, okay, you've been with me this entire time. You've been seeing these miracles. You've been seeing me do this stuff. I'm going to be sending you now in pairs. And you're going to be going out to these villages and towns and, and maybe to these smaller places that I'm unable to go to. You're going to be going out there and you're going to be doing the same thing. You're going to be preaching this message. You're going to be healing the sick. And you, now you're going to be driving out demons. He also gives them a few instructions that we read about in verses 8 through 9. One of those instructions, the first thing he tells them is to take nothing for the road except the walking stick. And I was asking myself again as I was reading this, why? This is what I believe. He tells them to take a walking stick, possibly as a reminder of Psalm 23, 4, where it says, even though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now this tells them, no bread. Don't take. He doesn't want them to take any bread. What a strange request. I mean, why not? You get hungry. Why not? Do you want us to die? No. As a reminder that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word, but by the word of God. And also to trust God for their daily sustenance. To trust God that he will provide. He also tells them to take no traveling bag. Why? So they wouldn't give out the perception that they were just traveling salespeople, travel, traveling salesmen. That they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be seen going from town to town with a traveling bag just selling something. Because that's, that's not what Jesus was doing and that's not, not what Jesus wanted them to do. They weren't selling something to people. They were giving them they were giving them hope. They were giving something, they were just giving something away for free. The free gift of salvation. He also tells them no money in their belts. Why? To learn to live and be content with the generosity of others. And he also says, and they were to wear sandals, but not put in an extra shirt. Again, strange request. And the only thing, again, I can come up with is, is so that they learn how to travel light, and again, be dependent on God and trust the Lord for everything. During those hot summer days and all those cold winter nights, that God was going to provide for them, that God was going to take care of them. Travel light. Be ready to go when it's time to go. If you have to go to this town, that town, you don't have to carry all this luggage and you don't have, you just, you're ready and you just, you're, you're gone. In verses 10, 11, after giving those initial instructions, he wanted them to understand how they were to conduct themselves as guests 
wherever they went. Regardless of whether they welcomed, regardless of whether they were welcomed or not, they were to preach the message and conduct themselves as representatives of Jesus Christ. Now, if they were welcomed, he wanted them to learn to be humble, thankful, and be content regardless of their host's standard of living. Even if it was in a small little hut, even if it was in a sleeping in the dirt, if that, if that host welcomed them, welcomed them in, Jesus tells them, you're, you're to stay there and just be thankful. Be thankful for what they're giving you. He didn't want them to be complaining, oh, you know what, I'm used to sleeping in a bed, I'm used to sleeping on a boat, you know, the, the smell of fish, and that's my life. No. He wanted them to be content and thankful wherever they were. Regard, again, just regardless of if, if, if that host had a mansion or whether they were sleeping in the dirt on the floor in a small hut. To be humble and thankful. Now in those places where they were unwelcomed and, rejects, and rejected, he told them that as, as they left, he tells them, when you're, when you're about to leave that town, when you're about to leave that place, they were to shake the dust off their feet, of the, off their feet as they witnessed against them. In that day and during that time, when a Jew traveled into a Gentile city, they were, they were to, to shake the dust off their feet as a gesture. See, Jews aren't supposed to have anything to do with Gentiles. They were dirty and nasty and, and, and anything, if they touched anything they touched or, or walked in the same place they walked, it would contaminate them. So for them, it was, it, was, it was just a gesture as they walked through a Gentile city to shake the dust off their feet. So what Jesus is essentially telling them, it was to regard any Jewish city that rejects their message as if they were a Gentile city. Now what a harsh, it almost, it does, it seems harsh. to treat a Gentile city as if they were, I'm sorry, a Jewish city as if, as if they were Gentile. Now, at the end of verse, at, at verses 12 and 13, it shows us how effective their ministry was. It says, so they went out and preached that the people should repent. And they were driving out many demons anointing many people and many sick people with olive oil and healing them. That's what they did. They were mirroring what Jesus was, had done. They were now doing the work of Jesus. As a Christian, there will, there will eventually come a time when you will sense God leading you to go out and apply what you've seen what you've experienced, and what you've learned as a follower of Christ. However, and again, this is important to understand, he will only send you out when he knows you're ready. Just as he knew that the disciples now were ready to go out and do this, and he, and he gave them the authority to do this, 
He will send you out when He knows you're ready. And the more you walk with Him, as that bond deepens between you and Jesus, the more equipped you will be to go out there and do what He's, he's, he's asking you to do. When He does send you out there, when He tells you, you know what, you need to, you know, you need to go to New York and, and preach the gospel in Central Park, whatever it may be, When he does, it's vital that you understand who it is that you're representing. There are so many people out there in ministry. There are so many people out there who claim to be, who claim to be representatives of Jesus Christ, who are in pulpits, who are out there in the mission field, and even in your local food pantries, in your kitchens, serving, you know, serving here and serving there and involving committees and, and trying to, to, and you see them involved in these churches, but they shouldn't be there. Their heart isn't there. They're not, they're, they're, their minds, their hearts are far from what Jesus want, wants them to be. A good indicator of how ready you may be for God to send you out and is how you fared, how you did during those moments of testing. When you've been broke, jobless, sick, and homeless, did you find your own methods to relieve the stress? Did you find your own way to deal with the frustration of not having money, not having those things. How did you deal with the stress? Did you deal with your own, did you, did you have your own methods? Did you figure out your own way? Or did you endure knowing that God will take care of all your needs? When you were offended, attacked, and rejected because of your faith, did you react according to your flesh? Or did you rejoice in knowing, did you rejoice in those per persecutions? How do you know if you're ready to go out there? You'll, it's, it, in a sense, you'll, you'll know, but how will you react? If someone, if you are sharing the faith and someone spits in your face, will you react again out of the flesh and just knock them out? Or will you be like, hey, you know, all right. This is what Jesus had to deal with. Did you know that they spat in Jesus' face as he was getting ready to be crucified? And he did nothing? If you're able to, to deal with that kind of pain and that kind of rejection and that kind of persecution, then yeah, maybe, it's, maybe you are ready. Maybe you're ready to go out there because you are. You're going to deal with that. It's going to happen.
brothers and sisters in Christ, it's better to wait for the Lord to send you out than to go out on your own accord without the proper training and equipping that comes from the Lord. And when He, when God Almighty believes that you're ready to go out there and begin applying what you've learned, He will use you in amazing and powerful ways. And this is what I want to conclude with. If we allow Him to, God will use rejection as a tool in our developmental in our developmental process in our process of sanctification that's why it's important that's why it's so vital that we not run or fear rejection yes the 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 pain that comes along with that rejection it hurts I'm not, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. I know that, you know, being rejected by, by friends and, and family and all that, it's, it's not easy. But it's temporary. That rejection, that feeling of rejection is temporary. But guess what? The glory of being accepted by God is eternal. And that's what matters the most, being accepted. The whole world may reject you. They may reject everything about you. They, just, they may once thought you were the best person in the world, and now that you're a Christian, they, just, they don't want anything to do with you, and they hate you, and, and it's, they just want to just dump you in, in, in the ocean and never hear from you again. accepted by God that's what ultimately matters and that's what drives me and that's what I don't care if everybody doesn't like me but just knowing that I'm accepted by God that's what motivates me that's what excites me that's what gets me going every single day that's why I do what I do I'm not here to sugarcoat anything. How every, I want to be able to preach the Word of God, the truth as it is, as it's said there. And even if it hurts, even if it's painful, and even if you leave here and say, you know what, that guy, Angel's a jerk. Hey, it's not me. I'm just teaching what it says here. You know, and, it's, and again, in a sense, you're not rejecting me you're rejecting what it what the word of god says and again as i said i'm not here to to sugarcoat anything whether you like it or not i'm going to preach the truth i'm going to i'm going to tell you as it is as it says there in god's word maybe you're sitting there or you're listening and realize that the fear of rejection is what's been keeping you from accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe it's that fear of, of you know what, that my, my tío or my tía and my 
primo and my cuñado aren't going to like me anymore and you know and I can't have that anymore I remember before I came back to the Lord that's what crossed my mind you know what my friends aren't going to be my friends anymore and they're going to not want to hang out with me and and then, and then that's when Jesus spoke to my heart and said does that matter does that matter compared compare does that matter really to you compared to what I'm offering you And ultimately, yes. okay, Lord. Yeah, you know what? I love those people, and I always will. But you, Lord, matter to me more than anything. And you know what? Yeah, in time they, they forgot about me, or they just don't want anything to do with me anymore. But that's okay, and again, because I'm accepted. I'm accepted by Christ. I'm accepted by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So maybe, just maybe it's time for you just to also forget about those things. Forget about what, you know, that, the, the, the thought of, of being rejected by those people you cared about. And just look to God and say, I want to be accepted by you. And he wants to give you that opportunity. Every, again, as I mentioned earlier, every day you, you breathe, every day you wake up and see the sun, he's giving you that opportunity to share in that glory. We're going to pray in a minute. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to be finally accepted regardless of your past regardless of your sins regardless of of those things I'm going to lead you in, in, in a prayer in just a minute so let's pray Heavenly Father, rejection is difficult. It is hard. But you've shown us through the example of Jesus Christ that it can be overcome. That all we need is to be accepted by you, Lord. We may be dishonored and criticized and, and, Lord, but that doesn't matter compared to the glory that awaits us, compared to what you have in store for us, the blessings. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us those times that we have just found our try to find our own methods to relieve the stress for those times that we acted in the flesh and Lord I ask 
not just for myself, but just for everyone that's sitting here too, that you fill them with your Holy Spirit. That you continue to just build them up into that person that you've that you're creating them to be, Lord. And if you've never accepted Christ, just pray. All you have to do is just pray this prayer in, the, in your heart. Just say, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. Forgive me for all the sins that I committed. I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. And right now, I accept him as the Lord and Savior of my life. I accept your free gift of forgiveness and ask that you change me from within. Help me to see you, to understand you, and use me as an instrument for your glory. If you've prayed that, then God will accept you. He has accepted you. Father, again, we come before you in complete thankfulness that you are a glorious and majestic God. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending him to die for us. Lord, and right now I ask that you continue to just bless everyone here. Bless the ministry that we're, that we're doing here for you, Lord. And may we go out there and just continue to be the salt and light in this world. And just be good and great representatives of Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us the rest of this week. Guide us. And again, just bless this time, this next time of, of fellowship we're about to have. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.